Hi, I'm Mindy Freed, and welcome to another special edition of The Shape of Care recorded from my home. I've been talking to caregivers and care workers about how they're coping in this time of pandemic. Today, my guest is Meg Flaherty Griffith. Meg is a geriatric physical therapist at a local hospital in Boston. That means she provides physical therapy services to older adults. But in another life, Meg was a dancer who performed with a ballet company. So we'll, we'll get at that a little bit later, too. Hi, Meg. You there? I am. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So I would love to talk to you about the work that you do with elders. Um, before the pandemic, how would you describe the nature of your work? So I'm actually with um, the home care agency now, and so I would be out and about uh, seeing up to six patients a day, running in and doing 45, 50 minutes and then driving on to the next one and then coming home and finishing all those notes on the computer. (laughs) So since the pandemic, has that changed? It has changed quite a bit and it sort of evolved over time. In the very beginning, we were just encouraged to continue business as usual, but I also was very concerned about all these elderly people and coming and going through so many homes in one day and not knowing what I might be bringing from one house to another. So I sort of cut back on the number of people I would see in one day, especially the very frail of my group here. And so I would typically start off the day, say, with that 96-year-old woman who'd had seizures and a stroke and was at higher risk. And then I would go on about my day with more healthy people. Can you give me an example of somebody that you worked with over this period of time and how how the protocols changed for you in terms of your work with them? At first, I believe we weren't even really required to wear masks for the first few weeks. And then it evolved to calling ahead and making sure the person and no one in the house had any symptoms and then wearing mask and, you know, gloves. And then a week or two later, the patient and everyone in the house near you had to be wearing a mask. What else? And then they were encouraging what they call telephonic visits or virtual visits, which for maybe the doctors or some of the nurses might be okay. But when you're a hands-on sort of business, (laughs) it's almost impossible. And then on top of that, you're working with elderly people who many, I'm not going to stereotype, but many people over 70, 80, 90 don't necessarily even have a smartphone. So those options were sort of not viable for physical therapy. So did that kind of shift the protocol to easing up so that you actually could go into the home in those cases or how did Yeah, that we were we were always allowed to go into the homes. I feel like at first we were there wasn't a clear protocol on what to do for these people who are at relatively higher risk, all of them. And um I remember speaking to colleagues, nurses and other occupational therapists because I felt very uneasy just going about my six people a day and and so we all sort of slowly cut back on how often you would go, maybe once a week, and then call in later in the week and check on the person on the phone, you know. Mm -hmm. To Um, reduce the the contact, the amount of contact that you would have with those people. Yeah, 
the actual physical, like in their home, putting your bag down, you know, we always had infection control measures we would use, you know, we had barriers we'd put down before putting your laptop on their table or cleaning and wiping and sanitizing. And, and then it just got a little more neurotic, I guess, <laughs> what we were doing. <laughs> so um, it seems that a part of your work, because you are getting in and seeing folks, that you perhaps are the eyes and the ears for other medical professionals. I'm, I'm wondering if that is the case, first of all. And if so, could you just give us an example of how that has worked for you? That is definitely what has happened. There's, of course, multiple reasons why this has happened, but many of the outpatient clinics have obviously shut down. So when I did go in, I feel like I did less therapy and more communicating by emails or phone calls or, or communicating through our computer system, our, our documentation system to, you know, somebody wanted to try and have a person get an ultrasound of his leg thinking he could have a blood clot. And meanwhile, I went there and he really had an ankle sprain, you know, and, and it would be unnecessary for him to go to one of the local hospitals to get imaging done and then possibly, you know, be exposed to unnecessary things. So that's a simple example. You know, I had a lovely 94-year-old woman who called me one morning and she called for a lot of things like, you know, a quart of milk and other things I would <laughs> I would just do because she couldn't get out. <laughs> but she called one morning and and had said that she had got her finger stuck in her disposal before she realized it had not been turned off. And I just, my, my image in my head was just like, oh my God, I'm going to go have to find a tip of a woman's finger on the floor somewhere. But it wasn't as bad as it sounds. But, uh, you know, I ran over there, called the nurse and showed her the picture and what should I do and bandages I had in my car. Thankfully, she had shut off the disposal. It was winding down, you know, and she'd stuck her finger in to get something there. And so it was just some deep cuts on the tip of her middle finger. And it wasn't really, uh, (laughs) it wasn't really anything that stitches needed to be done. I was just like, afraid I was going to be searching through her sink for some piece of finger. So that's a, a A relatively positive outcome in a crisis situation. Oh, yeah, sure. And unfortunately, we've had, I had at least two experiences of very negative outcomes. Well, first of all, every single person I went to see of my patients were terrified of having to go to the hospital. There were two that actually passed away, not from the coronavirus, but because they were so fearful of going to the hospital. And when they did go, they didn't make it. So tell me a little bit about um, your interactions with family caregivers. What relationship do you have with them? And how an example like this might families play, you know, a larger role? Um, Yeah, so I interact with the family, the caregivers a lot. A lot of uh, caregivers are stuck home alone with their loved one. and, And some of these agencies that provide PCAs and home health aides are having issues with staffing, either people not going to work or they're getting infected. So it's been very inconsistent. There's this, you know, woman who's already in her 70s caring for her 96-year-old mother was just 
exhausted because the mother would be up all night. She would change her because she would urinate so frequently and she was so afraid of bed sores and, and whatnot that she was up half the night with her mom and then nobody came to relieve her during the day. So it's been added stress on top of the already very stressful thing to care for a, uh, an older loved one at home by yourself. So do you end up playing a support role to the caregivers as well? Um, I do. And I think I'm I'm very thankful that right now I can see maybe like half of my caseload. I have more time. And so I actually feel like I spend an extra half an hour in the home just letting them vent. <laughs> really? I mean, they just... They are so lonely. They just need someone to talk to, you know, and this one woman is so appreciative because she missed desperately her Starbucks caramel macchiato or something <laughs> she's just addicted to. And so I go and the only Starbucks open is this one in Dedham that is drive up only, right? I literally sat in this line that snaked around the Dedham Mall there for like, I don't know, 45 minutes to get her a caramel macchiato and she was so happy. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but it's all important care. Yeah. Um, I know when I was caring for my dad, I played an advocacy role, um, especially when he was in assisted living, you know, just trying to navigate getting him the services he needed without being too much of a nudge and um, oh, no. you're That's sort of a very delicate line to toe <laughs> yeah yeah so I mean you're you're kind of on the other side of that and I'm wondering from your perspective do you have any advice for how caregivers can be effective advocates in situations where they want to make sure that their loved one gets the best care but they also you know don't want to uh, alienate people in the process Right. I do think that is a very hard and delicate balance because you do have to be a strong advocate, but there is that moment where people will just start labeling you as like, oh, this troublemaker, here she is again, complaining she needs something else from us. <laughs> so um, there might be sort of that moment you need to make sure you uh, express your appreciation, but then frustration as well. Mm. Well, it does, it makes me feel like maybe I did a little bit of this right, because when my dad was, um, for example, at some point, his hearing aid fell to the floor, and he asked somebody, one of the workers, to pick it up, and she got grumpy and kind of said, no, you do it yourself, which he was not able to. He was 97 years old at the time and really in major decline. And he told me about that. Then I went to the nurse's station and I just said, look, I know that by and large, the people who are you know, working with folks here are doing such an incredible job, but we just ran into this situation and I explained it and I said, is there anything that you could do about that? I'd really appreciate it. And you know, she, that particular aide got moved to another floor and I'm, hopefully they supported her in making some changes in the kind of response she had. So you know, finding that fine line of Yes, complaining, but also recognizing and acknowledging the important work that the care workers are doing, I think, seem to really make a difference in my experience as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it is, you have to realize some of these people are working for the lowest pay scale, doing the hardest work, and literally, you know, cleaning poop up, That's, you know, of some someone you care about. And uh, many of them have to work double shifts to get by 
and you just get you get some that are just total gems and they're just wonderful people and some are wonderful but exhausted and stressed out but you can't make excuses for people not doing their job well but it is appropriate to speak up because maybe they need to help support their staff better if they're stressed out or have too many patients to care for at once you know it's always an issue of caseload and stuff yeah like that. absolutely um i think that you're making some such important points about you know the nature of care work especially you know for pcas or in some cases home health aides you know given the, the low pay sometimes the lack of respect the overwork, you know, those those things are really major factors. So I think that as an advocate, you kind of have to take all those things into account. Exactly, yeah. So, um, so I'd like to end with just one question, because when you and I talked, I discovered that you were a dancer, and you discovered that I also had been a dancer. So that's something that we share in our earlier lives. Um, I'm wondering if there's any way that you incorporate dance into your PT work with elders. Well, absolutely, every day. So I danced with Jose Mateo Ballet Theater from 1989 to like 2007, which was just so lucky to have such a long career in that respect. But I think it's just just movement alone gives so much joy to me, first of all, which can help keep you going all the time in a tough job. But it just can bring joy to someone else. And even if it's something simple as doing a little exercise, exercise is boring for people. They didn't grow up exercising, you know, and then you put a little cha-cha in the middle or something. Just I just make I just try to make them laugh, really, especially now more than ever. And it's usually I walk in, I'm doing a little dance or whatever, put some music on. I even try to learn dances, you know, the bachata from the Dominican and the salsa from uh, Puerto Rico, what have you. They kind of perk up a little. There's always something about music and movement that can make someone's day. That's that's really lovely. And uh, what a great way to end our conversation. I just want to I want to thank you so much for joining me um, and for doing the important work that you're doing. So, and to people who are listening, if you have a comment or a question, having listened to this particular episode, feel free to contact me. Or if you have a story to share, I'd love to hear it. You can email me at contact at theshapeofcare.org. That's contact at theshapeofcare.org. And uh, we will be back next week with another short edition of The Shape of Care. So thanks for listening, and I hope everyone's staying safe.